Go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Let me go ahead and say what today's sermon's purpose is. Um, First, uh, we're seeking to glorify God by honoring Christ, by exalting Him in all of Scripture. So as we're looking at Numbers, we're looking forward to Christ by looking back at Numbers. Second, if you have never heard of this good, good news for you about Christ, this is for you today, uh, so that you might see a, a portrait, an example of your sin, of your rebellion against God, and your need for salvation from that sin, salvation from God's judgment on you, and the substitute, uh, the life-giving substitute who was lifted up in your place so that if you look to him, by faith, you might have new life. For the Christian in the room, uh, this is a reminder of what you've been through, of what your life was like before you looked to Christ in faith, to remind you of God's grace in your life, but also to remind you of this very basic story that you are to repeat and tell to others. So if you're someone in that, that first group I was talking to saying, hey, look, if you've never heard, if you've never believed, hey, how about you connect with someone in that latter group? And say, hey, you've been through this before. After the service, say, okay, can you tell me what that's like? I heard, heard the preacher guy up there talking about that, but, but I know you, and I know something happened in your life. Can you, can you tell me more? So how about after the service, y'all connect and, and talk about that story of what has happened to someone else that is true you know, for all people, that has become true for them in a very personal way. So let's, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your grace shown to us in Christ that we can know you, have a relationship with you, that you are the one who made the way when you are the very one who has the right to judge. You are the one that we offended, but you who made us in your image have sought to remake us into the image of Christ by grace through faith. Thank you. I pray, that, Lord, that today you would soften our hearts to hear your word, that you would apply it well to our lives by means of your spirit, uh, that you would use even me in this time of proclaiming it. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Give me just a second. I seem to be having some issues with my device. Just right now searching to make sure that we're on the same page. So here we are. All right, we're good now. All right. All right, starting in verse 1 in chapter 21. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you'll indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of that place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. 
For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I still try to look everywhere I step, wondering if one is waiting there for me. I wonder why other people don't look everywhere they step. Like my children run around not even looking, not even wondering if one is there, and I'm thinking, you need to be looking. It's not just children, it's adults too. They step everywhere without even thinking, is one there? I'm amazed, actually, when I go even a month without seeing one, and then other people don't even think about it. In a weird way, I get somewhat excited when I see one, even though I also get a little bit afraid. It's like an adrenaline rush runs through me. No, I'm not seeing weird things. I'm talking about actual things. So you know what I'm talking about. Now, this is a picture sent to me from a church member of a particular snake that bit her particular husband. And they got to witness to the people in the hospital whenever he's holding his arm straight up like this for a really, really long time. He was praising God while making sure that the poison, if there was any, didn't run through him. Um, now, I grew up in a rural part of Louisiana with ponds and woods nearby. Uh, there were a lot of snakes. Like, I, I could probably tell you over 100 different snake encounter stories I had in my adolescence. The poisonous snakes or venomous snakes that I encountered on our property included eastern diamondback rattlers, coral snakes, cottonmouth moccasins, and of course, as you see in here, copperheads. Now, we also had all kinds of non-venomous snakes there too. Like I said, there were ponds, so there, there were water snakes. Um, there were these things that we called chicken snakes. Um, I think you don't call them up that up here. I think you call them rat snakes. Uh, we had king snakes, um, which I was told not to kill like a king snake because they'll eat other snakes. Um, and then also we had uh, corn snakes. So I, I saw all kinds of them. Um, now, as I mentioned, what we call chicken snakes, um, we had to watch out for them, not because we were afraid of them for ourselves, but because we had chickens. And so my mom one time sent me out to, uh, we had some large chicken pens and sent me out to one of these chicken pens. And inside of those pens, one of them, we had this really large crate where some chickens would get in there and they'd lay their eggs inside of their nests. Now, one crate was like three feet high. And so I'm, I'm walking, I just now walk through the door of the, the large pen area and I stop in my tracks. Over the crate is half of the snake still hanging on this side. So half is in, half is out. I told you this was a three foot crate. Now, the back half of the snake is all I could see. I'm from the back half, ranged from the top of the crate down to the top part of the lowest plank. The snake was over five feet long. This was a regular occurrence for me growing up. Um, so do you wonder why I still look for them? And that wasn't even one of the poisonous ones. Like everywhere I go, I'm looking for it. Um, so my family, to say the least, we had always had to watch out for snakes. We, we had, it was basically you were raised to, to hunt snakes when you grew up on, on Pawnee Road where I grew up at. Uh, we had pets 
that would be bitten from venomous snakes on a regular basis. Uh, so w there was this one boxer that we had, his name was Al. Uh, Al would show up regularly, about every few months he would have swelling around his face and you knew exactly what had happened. Uh, we had cats that, that were killed in, uh, by venomous snakes. Um, we also were close to being um, struck by, by some snakes. Um, there's this one time, I mentioned Al, our, our boxer. Uh, my brother Ben and I were, were fishing in one of these ponds, we were in the canoe, um, and our dog Al was on the levee and he saw a snake. It was a copperhead, he got really excited and he, he, he can't really bite that well, you know. Uh, by that point in time he was older, he mainly would gum them and everything like that, not actually bite them. Um, and so he went and he, he tried to pick the snake up and, and try to bite it and, and, and shake it so it wouldn't bite him and he could try to attack it. But when he threw it, he threw it in the water right near Ben and me. Now, thankfully, Ben was closer to the shore than I was. So the snake was going to end up being closer to him. But he's like, oh, you got to paddle back. Paddle back. Don't let it get us. And we're like, where's the snake? Where's the snake? We don't see it. And then uh, copperheads, they don't really like to go to the water too much. They'll be near it, but they don't actually like to get in it too much. Well, this copperhead floats up to the water, and it doesn't just float up on the water. It does something I've never seen before. It starts raising its body up. And, it's, and, and here's the crazy part. Like, it's, like, it's like this. It's like two feet from Ben. And so it's like I'm paddling back, paddling back. He, he ended up okay. He wasn't bitten by the snake. Um, but if you ever find yourself in a place like Pawnee Road, where I grew up, you need to make sure to watch out for snakes as part of life. Well, there was another snake uh, at another place. Um, before they were really a threat, a physical threat to Adam and Eve, there was this one snake that Satan either used or took the form of to tempt Adam and Eve. You see, we were right with God until Adam and Eve trusted that evil serpent instead of trusting God. And the venom of sin that ran through them is deadly. It's the same venom that still runs through people today. Now, all that snake had to do with Adam and Eve was questioning whether God was being honest with them. They allowed him to twist their devotion, to twist their joy, to manipulate their love. Surely, they were more trustworthy than God. Surely, God didn't have their best interest in mind. Surely, they should do what the serpent was suggesting to them. So they took of the fruit, the one tree that God said, don't eat of that tree. You can have from any other tree in the garden, but not that one tree. You can eat of anything else, but not it. So they took of that fruit from that one tree, and they ate. And God had warned them, the day that you do that, you will certainly die. Now, they didn't physically die at that point in time. Like, they, they were looking around, but they started noticing everything is going wrong. Everything is wrong. They realized how shameful they were being naked for the first time ever. They realized, wait, this, this must be shameful. It wasn't shameful before God prior to that, but now they're filled with shame. Everything is going wrong in the world. Everything starts to, to devolve instead of evolve. It starts to, to get worse and worse and worse. They had taken from that one fruit, from that one tree. And now God had to pronounce judgment upon them. They would be separated from God. See, he said they would certainly die. And even if they didn't physically die, they, they died in a greater way. They spiritually died. And they were separated from God.
But God gave a promise before he sent them away. There would be a male descendant from the woman who would defeat this very serpent in the garden. The serpent would strike his heel, but that man would crush the head of this serpent. God pronounced judgment upon people because of sin. And by the way, once more, we all deal with sin. If you don't believe me, you can come and ask about me. I know about my sins just even up to day. And I'm thankful to God for his grace. But one day, the rescuer would pay the price for us. Remember, it says that the serpent would strike his heel. The venom of sin is deadly. It puts us to death, separating us from God. But that rescuer would take that venom for us if we have faith in him. Do you think that you don't need that? Do you think this is just a story that's nice? Investigate it. Look, I was reminded the other day, we're living in a time and in a place with a certain perspective where nothing really is trusted. Nothing really is solid and you can just assume it's true. Don't just sit back and be proud and think, oh, I'm not going to look into it. I'm, I'm better than this. Actually look into it. Investigate your own beliefs and own assumptions that you have right now. Investigate what we're talking about today. Look at scripture. Look at the verses we're reading. Look at the ones in John chapter 3 that we'll look at later. Check yourself. Does this apply to me? And according to scripture, it does. You see, we all worship something. We're all devoted to something. Check your calendar. Look at, look at your motives. When you get out of bed in the morning, what gets you out of bed? Why do you even get out of bed? What is life to you? What drives you? Is it the idea of success that you can somehow achieve a certain level of income? Is it that you want to have the best house in the neighborhood and, and show off to the neighbors and show how much better you are? Is it your child's schedule? Is it your children themselves? What is it that drives you? You see, because we are devoted to something, your actions, your behavior, they testify against you and let you know you are a worshiper made to worship the one true God, but you're worshiping something else. So your very own devotion to whatever it is you're devoted to is telling you, letting you know you're supposed to be worshiping God. You're made to worship God. So to whom or what are you giving your worship? So with that in mind, let me let you know you're supposed to worship the one true God, but all have sinned. All are separated from God because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory and God's standard. According to scripture, we deserve death for what it calls sin. And as we see illustrated in our text today from Numbers 21, all have sinned. Whether you're a Canaanite or an Israelite, whether you're Jew or Gentile, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Now, the Canaanites in our passage today, they had um, learned that the Israelites, that they were passing through their area. And this is not the first time these Canaanites had interacted with the, the Israelites. Years prior, whenever the Israelites in Numbers uh, are saying, you know what, we're on the edge of the promised land. God wants us to go in. Let, let's send in spies to check it all out. Well, they send in 12 spies. Two of them give accurate reports. You know what the other 10 do? We've talked about it here at the church before we read through this. The other 10, they say, you know what? This is really a great land. Like, God promised all these things, and we see it. But, man, those people are big. Um, 
I, I, had, I had someone point out to me the other day when, when Paul and I went to visit someone, um, he had met Stanley uh, here at church at one point in time, and then Paul and I met, met this guy, and he was like, you know what, I've only met three of your elders so far. All of you are really big guys. Is that on purpose to intimidate people? You know, and, and so imagine like the three of us and then these people like to the Israelites, it seems like they're even bigger. Like they make him out to be like the children of these giants of the past. It's like, hey, look, these guys are huge. There's, there's no way that we can go in here and actually have a chance. They were completely forgetting that God had delivered them over and over again with the Egyptians and through the Red Sea. Uh, and so like, look, there's no chance. There's no way. So those 10 say, okay, game plan, huddle up. What are we going to do? Let's, let's make sure that we don't go in here and get kicked out of here by these people and, and like bad things happen to us. So we're going to convince all the people, look, you don't want to go in. These people, they'll, they'll kill you, they'll destroy you, they'll take your women and children, do horrible things to them. There's no way you should want to go in there. So who's the, like the one person that they're forgetting about in all of this is God. They're like, you know, what? I, we don't need to worry about him. We're worried about these big people. Well, then God says, okay, you rebelled against me for the last time. This is not going to happen anymore. Where I'm going to like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, hey, come with me. You're going to die in the wilderness. Let's, let's walk around for 40 years until all of you that are 20 years and older are dead. And so they say, okay, if that's our option, certain death versus potential death with these really big people, let's go with potential death. So God, even though you told us first to go in, we didn't go in, and now you're saying don't go in, walk around for 40 years, we're now going to go in. Aren't we great people? Moses is like, y'all are crazy. Don't you see God's not with you? They really are big people, and they really will take you out because God is not with you anymore. So they try to go in anyway. All right, these Canaanites that just now attacked the Israelites, that's the group. The same place is where they attacked him at, beat him at last time. Hey, look, they're passing by again. Isn't this fun? You know what? These people, they really are idiots, aren't they? They're just coming back in our area. You know what? We heard all those stories about what happened in Egypt. Surely, surely those were exaggerated. Their God must be a laughing stock. So they come out and attack them. And God uses Israel to destroy that people group at that point in time. Now, to you, that, that might seem devastating. Do you know why? It's because it is. It is devastating. The cost of sin is death. That is what we earn for ourselves when we rebel against the one true God and do not honor him as Lord. Uh, Romans 6, uh, 23 points out that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We earn it. We work for death because of the venom that works through us. This is our circumstance, regardless if you are Jew or Gentile, Indian or Pakistani, American or Peruvian. It doesn't matter where you come from or who your parents are. Your parents could have been the most godly people ever. That doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't make you saved. It doesn't set you free from these circumstances. It could be that your grandparents were the most generous people in your entire community and were pillars for that entire community. You are a sinner in need of God's grace to set you free. That was true for the Canaanites, and it was also true for the Israelites. As we saw in our passage, it starts with the Canaanites coming out and attacking, and, and Israel saying, hey, deliver them over into our hands. And so they were destroyed. But then in verse 4, it switches around. 
Look, Israel's still marching through the wilderness, and then God says, hey, look, take this long route around, and they get frustrated again. They're like, God, we're, we're so tired of this. We're tired of you being our God and telling us what to do. Um, and so they complain. So God sends what the text refers to as fiery serpents. Now, this, this phrase, fiery serpents, commentators think it could be one of two things. It could be that they're calling them fiery serpents because they're venomous snakes. And when the venom runs through you, it starts to burn and hurt very badly. Now, um, I was talking with someone earlier um, that has picked up a baby copperhead before and then thought he would warm it up and take care of it. But then the baby copperhead realized, hey, there's a human person holding, my, holding me. I'm going to bite his hand. All right. He says, yeah, it started to burn about 15 minutes later. It didn't feel that great. All right. So it could be that the commentators are saying, look, it's like, it's like poison running through you that burns. It could be that's why they're referred to as fiery serpents. Uh, another uh, view within commentators is that they think that this could be a, a type of snake. So the phrase fiery serpents were appealing to a very various understanding of snakes. And so it's like this particular type of snake. Uh, if that were the case, uh, some posit that, um, that it would be the carpet viper, that it would fit this region, a high rate of snake bites, and deadly nature of the venom. Now, uh, some of you in here uh, might know the term or the, um, the type of snake, uh, a saw-scaled viper. Have you ever heard of a saw-scaled viper, some of you? Um, I, was, I was watching, uh, when you know those Discovery Channel things where it's like the deadliest snakes in the world and everything? So, I, like, when I go to watch that, I think, okay, it's got to be like the king cobra. Like, that thing is huge and, like, so, so scary, so deadly. It's the largest poison snake and everything. Surely, like, it can take it on an elephant. Surely that's the deadliest snake. Uh, and they were talking about deadliest of humans. No, that was not the deadliest snake. I was thinking, okay, maybe the anaconda is huge. No, maybe, maybe the mamba is so fast and quick. No. Maybe one in Australia because they have so many, like, deadly vipers. No. The, the saw-scaled viper uh, is, is uh, according, like, lives in this region, like uh, Egypt toward India and, that, and down to Sri Lanka. Uh, these snakes are actually not that big. They're actually rather small. Um, but they account for more deaths to humans from snake bites than any other snake. One reason is because they are so small. Uh, the second reason is they are deadly accurate and quick when they go to strike. Um, and so the, the venom works through you, and within a couple of days, you're usually, usually dead. Um, so it could be that it could be that, that type of viper, the carpet viper. Um, one writer who suggested that it was this type of snake uh, said, if, it, if that is what this is referring to, uh, as God's tool of judgment, it would be fitting. The reason why is because God would be bringing the most deadly snake to where Israel was right as they gave in to sin's deadly consequences. Another commentator noted the effectiveness of this type of judgment. As I said earlier, like, people don't like to mess with snakes. I don't like to mess with snakes. You look everywhere, you don't want to mess with them. Um, another commentator noted the effectiveness of this type of judgment, saying that we do not have another recorded incident of Israel complaining against God. Now, even more amazing than the extent of this judgment sending, sending these fiery serpents is the means for rescue from it. God told Moses to make a snake apparently out of bronze or copper of a, of a, of a reddish color of some sort and place it on a pole. And all who would be healed, all they had to do was to look up to the serpent that was on a pole and have like and trust that God would heal them, and He would heal them. Now that's interesting for a few reasons. 
All right, first, a sign of judgment was their very means of salvation. Remember, this, this snake that bit them, you have something looking just like it on a pole. Now, if a snake just now bit you, I don't care if it's poisonous or not, do you want to see another snake at that moment in time? No, you don't. That's the last thing you want to see. But the very means of judgment was the symbol that they were to have for their means of salvation. That which brought death was the very thing to bring life. Our second interesting thing about the sign of a snake on a pole was that one was healed by faith in God as you looked to it. Now, the power to bring life in, uh, in, uh, out of the situation did not belong to that serpent on a pole. Let's be clear about that. God did not intend for it to be that way. It was him working through that as they looked to him by faith. So ultimately, their faith was not to be in this artwork. Later in Israel's history, by the way, some people started making their faith into things like this. Uh, Hezekiah is recorded in 2 Kings as breaking this serpent on a pole. It might be this one. It might be a reproduction of it. Um, but breaking it because people had started using it for, for idol worship. So if the people were to be healed, it was because they were trusting God, not this serpent, not this artwork that someone put together. Your salvation in God, by God, is by faith in him, not in your works, not in someone else's works. They can only be in God alone. Now, a third reason this means of salvation is interesting is because it seems like it comes out of nowhere. Why, why would God tell Moses, hey, look, put something together that's physical, an image that the people can see and look to and let them say, you know what, I'm going to look to it and then looking to it, I'll find healing, I'll find life. God was very clear. Israel was not to make idols out of anything. If you set up an image out of anything to worship it, that was a sin that was punishable by death. You are not to do that. Why would God command Moses to do this? Because it wasn't set up to be an idol. It was set up to be a physical sign, pointing to someone later on. Jesus actually calls us out, because Jesus is the one who has destroyed the power of Satan. He's the one who destroyed that serpent. But you must look to him by faith if you are to live. And he points that out in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus actually says, look, I, I'm trying to speak to you, Nicodemus, who he's speaking to in John chapter 3, in earthly terms, in terms that you can actually recognize and you can actually relate to. I mean, he's even saying, look, you're an expert in the law in the Old Testament. Let me pull an Old Testament example for you. And it's still a struggle for Nicodemus. It's like, look, I want to talk to you about heavenly things, things that I alone can speak about and let you know about what God is like. But I'm trying to speak to you in terms you can understand, and you're still not getting it. So it may seem like a paradox to you, as it did to Nicodemus, but salvation from sin, fear, various lusts, arrogance, and death, that salvation is by looking with faith to a man who is crucified. A man who is crucified as a criminal in order that you might be set free. It might seem weird to you. It might seem like a paradox, but it is true. The snake on a pole was preparing us for Jesus. The very one who has the right to judge you is the one who is lifted up in our place. That if we look with eyes of faith to him and say, I'm trusting you. I know this seems really weird to me because I'm so used to trying to make things work for myself. 
I'm so used to trying to make everything good for myself. But I'm going to say, I'm going to set it aside, lay it all down, and place my faith in the man that was lifted up. And God is saying, that is the very way of salvation for you. The sinless son came to save us from the control of Satan, and he took the snake's venom for us. In being lifted up, he took that strike upon his heel. The sad part is that when God tells Moses to set up this, this bronze serpent, he does so in such a way that it's saying, you know what, people might not look. Imagine, put yourself in, in an Israelite's shoes at this point in time. Hey, I heard the other day, like, you know, with all these snakes going around that we have to watch out for, that, that you know, you're watching everywhere that you step. Um, I heard that Moses had an artist put together this snake on a pole. And really, they, he said, if you get bitten by one, come and look at this, and everything's going to be okay. How weird does that sound? Like, this, this is not like, like a superstitious people that are going to be like, you know what, I'll, like, that sounds something like God would say. Surely, like, people can be superstitious sometimes, but they're not dumb. You know, they're like, okay, that's really weird. So imagine you're that type of an Israelite saying, I'm going to be a little bit cynical about this. Then you hear someone else say, you know what, no, that really happened. I got bitten by one of those snakes, and, and, and I went and I looked at the bronze serpent that was lifted up, and, and I'm okay. I didn't die. And she's like, ah, you know, it probably, probably was a dry bite. Probably didn't pass any poison into you. You know, it's, it's not a big deal. And then you get bitten. How do you respond? What's, what's to actually keep you from going and looking at that bronze serpent, serpent lifted up on a pole? Is it pride? Saying, oh, I, I said I wasn't going to believe it, so surely I'm not going to go. You just got bitten by a deadly snake. Are you really going to give up every opportunity or any opportunity to be healed? No, you're going to say, you know what, Jesus, take the wheel. I don't know what's going on. Please save me. You know, um, maybe it's control. Maybe you're saying, you know what, I like control of my own life. And if I go and do this, it means that I got to say, God, you can have control. I don't really want to do that. Maybe it's that you're saying, I want to be able to do all kinds of things that I've been enjoying that don't always fulfill me but make me feel good for a moment in time. And I want to keep doing that. And if I give my life to God, then I can't do those anymore. Okay, once more, you got bitten by a deadly snake, and at some point in time, that venom will work all the way through your body. And all those pursuits that you want are going to die with you. You have two options, life or death. You're going to go and look at the one lifted up if you have any wisdom to you at all. Now, as I pointed out earlier, the kind of venom that we're wanting to talk about today is not the venom that's going to course through you because you walk outside of this building and there's a snake sitting right there on the sidewalk and you don't see it. The type of venom that we're talking about is saying, it's already bitten you. If you're in this room, you have been bitten by this venom if you understand what I am saying. Every single one of us. And we have a medic that is waiting to say, come to me and I will heal you. I have been lifted up already. I have already died so that venom doesn't affect you. Look to me. What is to keep you from looking to Jesus today? Like we were talking about that Israelite, was it pride? Is it control? Is it all kinds of others? What is to keep you? Not someone else, not someone hypothetical, you. What is to keep you from looking to Jesus today and finding life? That is available to you today, just as it was 2,000 years ago, nearly 2,000 years ago. All you have to do is look to the one that was lifted up 
that died in your place, was buried and risen again so that you could have new life, look to him by faith. That's all it is. Stop trying to work for it. Stop trying to say and dismiss it and there are all kinds of other things to live for. Investigate it. Look into this matter so that you look at Jesus. And when you do, start doing that. Come and talk to one of us. Because we want to be able to talk with you about our own story, reassure you of yours, and help you walk with Christ from here on out. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work today. That if there's anyone here that, that has never looked to Christ, that you would work by your spirit to convict that person of their need for Jesus, of the realization of their sin, of the judgment that's coming their way, and that they would look to Jesus by faith and find life. Father, those of us who are in Christ, we know what this has been like. We know that we recognized it at some point in time by your grace. And so, Father, you also, by your grace, had us look to Jesus. I pray that would be the case today. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.